0: Good morning, Moberly. It's great to see you, great to be back. I encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse nine. We're continuing our series through the parables, and today this is a Christmas parable. It may say in your Bible, the parable of the corrupt farmhand or the bad tenants, but remember, all these parables are about God. So I'm calling it the parable of the patient owner because we're going to see how patient God is. So how many of you have finished your Christmas shopping? Hold your hand up. Well, that's not too many. You got some work to do. I heard a funny story about two rednecks over in Louisiana, Joe Bob and Bubba. Joe Bob said, Bubba, what are you getting your wife for Christmas? And Bubba said, well, she said she either wanted a diamond necklace or a new four-wheel drive Jeep. So Joe Bob said, well, what'd you get her? He said, I got her a two-carat diamond necklace. And Joe Bob said, man, that was pretty expensive. Why didn't you get her a Jeep? Because he said, Bubba said, because you can't buy no fake Jeep. (laughs) Some of you might get that a little later. (laughs) Let me give you a little background for this parable today. Uh, it's, it's during the few days before Jesus goes to the cross. The previous Sunday was Palm Sunday. He had ridden into Jerusalem with the people saying, Hosanna, hail him. And it's often called the triumphal entry, but I never call it that. I call it the tearful entry because it was a day of tears and cheers. Uh, the same crowd hollering, hail him. would just in a few days being nail, be yelling, nail him. The same fickle crowd that was saying crown him would be saying crucify him. And it was a tearful entry because as Jesus went down from the Mount of Olives, down the trail that we still take today when we go with groups, halfway down he stopped and he wept over Jerusalem. It's all in Luke 19 if you want to read it this afternoon. In fact, halfway down that Mount of Olives today, there's a beautiful little church called Dominus Flevit, which means our Lord's tears. And that's where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he wept over Jerusalem. And, you know, there's two times in the New Testament, it speaks of Jesus weeping. Once at the tomb of Lazarus, the Bible says Jesus wept. And that word means a tear trickled down his cheek. But this word in Luke 19 is a much stronger word, kalio. It means he wept loudly, his his shoulders shuddered with his sobs. So what made Jesus cry that day? Because he looked at Jerusalem, looked up there at the massive Herod's temple, and he knew and even said as he wept, one day you're going to be surrounded by armies, and you're going to be destroyed and led away, and not one stone will be left upon the other. Then he said, here's the reason why. You did not recognize the time of God's visitation, meaning I'm God in the flesh, I'm here, and you don't recognize me. This whole temple was for me, it was my father's house, but you carry on your empty sacrifices. And I've come to save you, but you have rejected me. He came into his own, and his own received him not. And so he wept. And so you're going to see in this parable that we read today, it's a a parable literally against the Jewish people. Because they themselves say when they recognized this parable was against them, they wanted to kill him. Well, with that introduction, let's begin here. Luke 20, verse 9. You're welcome to stand with me as we read this portion of God's word. Now, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Okay, that, that owner represents God. Leased it to some tenant farmers. That's, that's us. And he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. Not all of it, just some. They were like sharecroppers. But the farmers beat him, that is the servant, and they sent him away empty-handed. He, the owner, God, sent yet another servant. But they beat that one up too and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one. And in Mark's version, they say he, they wounded him in the head, which is maybe a reference to John the Baptist. We know what happened to him and his head. They wounded this one, too, and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know I will send my beloved son. And again, in Mark, he says my only beloved son Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then he paused and he asked the crowd, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them, and then he answers his own question. He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, This must never happen. But he looked at them and he said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? And he quoted a familiar scripture from Psalm 118 The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, or literally the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests, remember these were the religious mafia, they looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because, notice this, they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have come here today for one reason only, and that is to have an encounter with you, the one true living God and your son, Jesus. We've come to worship you. We've come to speak to you in prayer. And we've come for you to speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. And I know, Lord, that for everyone who will say, Lord, speak to my heart, that's a prayer you will answer. So for those that have ears to hear, may they hear your message today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks be seated. Did you notice that there were two totally opposite reactions to this story? You know, the common Jewish people said, oh, no, this can never happen. But the chief priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, they said, oh, we've got to get this guy because this parable is against us, the Jewish religious system. Now, Christmas is the most popular American holiday by far. According to the Pew Research Center, over 90% of Americans participate in some kind of Christmas celebration. Trees, lights, presents, something like that. But the sad thing is that only a small percentage of, of Americans now identify themselves as Christians, about 60%. That means there's millions of Americans who are celebrating a holiday and they know nothing about the God whose birth we are celebrating And so, as I've said many times as we're in this series on the parables, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to teach us what his father is like. And so we want to study study this morning four foundational characteristics of God that we find in this parable. Here's the first characteristic. God is good. God is good. He has placed us in his world To tend it. God in this parable, God is the vineyard owner who planted the vineyard and then he told the tenants to take care of it. And that's what God has done for us. We don't own anything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If you think you own something, I'd like for you to try to come back in a thousand years and claim it. No, you don't own anything. You just manage it for a while for God, just like these tenants were doing. And we know that God is good because that's just part of his nature. The first words in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, 1 in Hebrew, Elohim. in the beginning, God created. And then in this process of creation, he said everything he did was good. Six times in Genesis 1, it said, and God looked at what he had created and said, it is good. Six times. And then the seventh time when he looked over it all, he said, it is very good. But then he saw something and he said, well, this is not good. And what was not good? He looked at Adam and Adam was all alone. And he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. So he decided to create Eve, someone for Adam. I heard a funny story about an imaginary conversation between God and Adam at this point. And God said, hey Adam, I've got a woman for you. I mean, she's absolutely beautiful all the time. She never nags, she never fusses, she never disagrees with you. Anything you ever ask her to do, she'll do it automatically. I mean, she is just perfect in every way. Adam said, that sounds pretty good, but what, what's that going to cost me? God said, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam said, well, what can I get for a rib? Good thing, though, Adam had a spare rib. God turned it into a prime rib. And he created... From him and for him, someone who is just perfect to create to complete Adam. And he told them to tend the garden and take care of it. And they did. That was God's plan for humanity. But as you know, they rebelled against God. So we learn over and over again, you got God is a good God. Now, I'm not saying life is good. And I'm not saying circumstances are good. There are plenty of terrible things that happen in the world. Plenty of terrible people in this world. Wickedness rules. But... In spite of it all, God is good. I know sometimes people come to me and they say, "Pastor, it's just not fair." Just not fair. And I always say, "You know what? You're right. Life isn't fair, but God is good." In fact, at Green Acres for many, many years, all I had to say is God is good and everybody would respond, let's see if you if you can do it here. God is good. All and all the time. Let's do that again. God is good. All and all the time. God is good. You know, I love barbecue. And when I was in college in Birmingham, Alabama, there was a place there called Ollie's Barbecue. It was started in 1939. Of course, if you go east of the uh, Mississippi, almost all the barbecue is pork and it's almost all vinegar-based barbecue sauce. And the owner of Ollie's was a good Christian. So it it was a beautiful restaurant in a circle. And he had a big, huge sign right over the counter where people would eat. And it said this, it was Psalm 24, eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that a great verse? Isn't that a great verse for a barbecue restaurant? <laughs> Anybody in here ever had an Ollie's barbecue beside me? Nobody did in the first service either. And they're closed down, so no more chances to have it. But I'm here to testify to you, Ollie's barbecue is good. You know why? I've tasted it and I can testify it is good. How many of you here know God? Can you testify that God is good? That's right. You see, you don't know that God is good until you taste and you see that God is good. So that's the first thing we learn about God, that God is good. Here's the second thing we learn. Number two, God is patient. He sends us many messengers. Now in this story, the owner of the vineyard sent a messenger to say, hey, I, I want to collect some of the grapes for the owner. And they said, no, you're not getting anything. Send another one, no, you're not getting anything. Third one, no, you're not getting anything. And they wounded him. Can you imagine? But this, the owner was so patient, he kept sending messengers to them. And be like you, if you were a landlord and owned an apartment complex and you sent one of your employees over to an apartment where the rent was past due, And they punched your rent collector in the nose. I'm not paying a penny. you, You take the law enforcement people with you. But this man was so patient, he'd sent three different servants. And what's that a picture of? It's a picture that all throughout the Old Testament, God was sending messengers to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming Messiah. Isaiah had said, unto you, a child is going to be born and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the the prince of peace. He's gonna be Emmanuel, God with us. And and Micah even said, he's gonna be born down there in Bethlehem. So many messianic prophecies to get ready. Messenger after messenger after messenger. And what did they do? They killed the messengers. They, They killed the prophets. They persecuted them. Elijah was threatened by a wicked queen. Jeremiah was cast into a pit and John the Baptist had his head separated from his body. Somebody has said that poets... Pigs and prophets have one thing in common. They're never appreciated until after they're dead. (laughs) Though prophets never were received when they were alive, they were hated. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. In fact, that's what the Old Testament is all about. The Old Testament is all about someone is coming. The New Testament is about someone has come. His name is Jesus. And Revelation is all about someone is coming again. Now, why do you think Jesus has not yet returned? Because, you know, some people say, you Christians, you've been saying for years, for decades, for centuries, you've been saying Jesus is coming again. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, the thing they don't understand is God has great patience. In fact, the reason Jesus might not have come back yet is because there's somebody in this room or somebody watching on a screen that you have not yet given your life to Jesus. And God loves you so much. He's so patient. He's waiting for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. How do I know that? The Bible says that. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow, keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish. Did you know God doesn't want anyone to die and go to hell? But he wants everyone to come to repentance, And that's what they did. They killed the prophets when God is waiting and he's patient. And you may be the one right now today who puts your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one he's waiting on. Only God knows. Now, in the 19th century, the 1800s, before television and radio, people entertained themselves in a variety of ways. They had expositions and circuses and shows and things like that. But there were people who were known as orators who'd go around the country and travel and tour and fill big auditoriums just to hear somebody talk, an orator uh, um, among a variety of topics. And one of the most famous, one of the most popular was an agnostic lawyer by the name of Robert Ingersoll. You can Google him and find out more about him. He was known as the great agnostic. He would travel around, give lectures, on how the Bible is full of contradictions, it's not true, how there's no way that Christianity is valid. He'd just tear down the Christian faith and would do it to an audience that was mostly Bible-believing Christians. And he would always end his talk very dramatically. He would say, I'm going to prove for you one final time there is no God. And then he would look up and he said, if there is a God in heaven, I charge you at this moment, to strike me dead with a bolt of lightning in the next five seconds. And then he would count down five, four. I mean, there were reports of women fainting because they expected it. There were reports of people running for the exits because they just knew a bolt of lightning was gonna come. Three, two, one. See, there is no God. Can anyone refute that? He would always say, can anyone refute that? And most times there was nothing but silence. But at one Midwestern town, there was a sweet, dear, white-haired lady who had walked with the Lord for many years. She stood up, and she laughed, and she said, oh, Mr. Ingersoll, how foolish to think that you can exhaust God's wonderful patience in just five seconds. And that's true. Our God is a patient God. That's what we learn from this parable. Number three, the third thing we learn about God is that God is love. These are foundational truths about God. He's good, he's patient, and God is love. He sent his only son. Now, this is where the Christmas aspect of this parable comes in, because that's what Christmas is. That's when Jesus came to planet earth to redeem us from our sins. Now, the terrible thing about this parable is that these these tenants, this was not a spontaneous action of, of killing the son. They calculated, they planned it. They said, hey, listen, this is the heir, and if we kill him, the owner's going to kick over sometime, and we'll have the whole vineyard to ourselves. You know, that is the very essence of sin. The very essence of sin is saying, I don't need God. I can live my life independently from God. I can have it all myself. I don't need God. That's, That's the basis of unbelief. And so Jesus came to show us God's love. In fact, it says there in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, this is a great Christmas verse, when the time came to completion, meaning when all of the Old Testament prophecies had come to fulfillment, God sent His Son, born of a woman. Notice that. It didn't say born of a man and a woman. Never once in the Bible is, is Jesus called the son of Joseph and Mary. He's the son of God and the son of a woman, Mary. Born under the law. Why? Why? to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. God loves us so much that he had only one son, his one beloved son, and he sent that son to die for us. You know, most of us memorize John 3:16 in the King James Version, which I still love, but I can remember as a little kid learning it, I got a little confused about one of those words that I didn't really understand what it meant. I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. And I had to be corrected. It's not forgotten. What, is, what does begotten mean? And I, rem- I remember my mother saying, I don't really know, but that's what it says. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's an unusual word, monogene. You know, mono means one and gene means birth. He's unique in the way he was born. There's no other person like Jesus. Before Jesus or after he's totally unique. And God sent that son to die for us. What great love for him to send his son. For God so loved the world that he gave. God commended, he demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't like God said, okay, repent of your sins, straighten up your life, clean up your act, and then I'll let my son die for you. No, it was, I'm gonna let my son die for you so that my love will draw you to repentance. You know, I have two grown daughters, and I'm coming to love you folks here, I really am. But I gotta be honest, I don't love any of you enough to allow one of my daughters to die for you. You know why? Because I don't have the depth of love that our Heavenly Father has. That's how much God loves us. He's the owner of the vineyard. You know, our, our choir in Tyler used to sing a song, the love of God, and I love one of the, one of the verses. It says, Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's how much God loves us. His love is so inexhaustible. It is unconditional. And you just can't resist that kind of love, can you? True story, in the early 60s, Time Magazine was concerned because they were losing subscribers. So they decided to put on an emphasis to try to increase their subscriptions. So they, they combined with this new company called International Business Machines, IBM. And IBM offered to do everything by this new thing called Computers. And this computer probably filled up about two rooms. But this was gonna be the first mailer that was done without touching human hands. The letter would be printed, placed in an envelope, addressed, stamped, taken to the postal service, never once touched by a human hand. And they sent out thousands of these. But as you and I know today, very much so, computers have these things called glitches, right? (laughs) And so this actually happened, true story, there was a sheep herder in Wyoming who received 12,423 letters from Time Magazine asking him to subscribe. I mean, it's like, it's like six big huge bags on, on his porch. And after he read about four or five of them, he wrote a check for a subscription and sent it in to Time with these three words, I give up. <laughs> I think about God's love for us, the great love he had for us, I mean, it's like, I give up. God, I, that's how much you love me, and I, I, I thank you for your great love. Well, God is good. God is patient. God is love. But finally, and importantly, God is holy. He will punish sin. You see, the, the takeaway from this whole parable is this. If you reject God's offer, you will experience God's judgment. Let me say that again. If you reject God's offer you will experience God's judgment. This became true historically for Israel. Did you know that? They rejected Jesus as the son of God. And he said, I'm gonna take it away and I'm gonna give it to somebody else. And you know what the Bible's talking about? He took it away from the Jewish people and the church became made up primarily of us Gentiles. Let's go in that to the Jews would have been just absolutely unthinkable. But that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. The Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and they set fire to the temple mount and the city burned. The residents were all killed or taken away as slaves. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. Josephus tells us that after the fire was extinguished, the Romans took long poles and pried the stones apart to get to the melted gold between the stones. Not one stone would be left upon another. And from 70 A.D., there was no Israel, no Israel. Anywhere on the face of the earth, the Jews were scattered diaspora around the world until when? 1948. 1948, the first time that Israel became a nation since 70 AD. That's why, by the way, I believe we're living in the last days, because the nation of Israel does exist. And so much of the end time prophecy has to do with Israel. I mean, it's amazing to me that preachers who preached before me before 1948 like uh, Truett and Charles Spurgeon, every time they read the word Israel in the Bible, they had to say, oh, Israel's the church. You know why? There's no Israel. Guess what? When we read the word Israel today, guess what? There is an Israel. And God's judgment was harsh and hard against the nation of Israel. But you know what? God's judgment is always just because he is a just God. Some of you already heard that starting Second Wednesday in January, I'm going to teach a study of Revelation, God's final word, right here, six to six thirty. Everybody's invited. You think it's a scary book that you, it's hard to understand? It's really not. It's a simple book once you understand the key, and I'll give you the key the very first session that we have here. But the main part of the book is when God pours out His wrath upon those who've rejected Him and. I believe we as Christians won't be here, then we will already have been raptured up into heaven by that time. But he pours out his wrath upon the earth and it's terrible judgment. It's seven seals that are broken, each one's a judgment. There are seven trumpets that are blown and each one's a judgment. There are seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And each one gets worse and worse and worse. And right in the middle of all of this, an angel makes an observation. And this is in Revelation 16:5. He says, "God." You are just in these judgments. In other words, what you were doing is absolutely just. You who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. Now, why did Jesus weep that day when he stood before Jerusalem? Because they didn't recognize God. And there's still many people today that don't recognize Jesus as God. And then Jesus said the clincher, he said, you know the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected? That's the one that's going to become the capstone. Now, there's a Jewish legend that says that when Solomon's temple was being built, something very strange happened. We do know it took 70 years, 30,000 slaves building 70 years to build Solomon's temple. And early on in the process, none of the stone was quarried at the site because there wasn't going to be the sound of a hammer being heard. The builder received an oddly shaped stone. And he said, I don't know where this goes. And so it was just rolled down the hill into the Kidron Valley. And it was there for years. I mean, moss grew over, dirt grew over it. And toward the end of the process, the builder said, now I'm ready for the capstone. Where's the capstone? This is decades ago. The quarry master came back and said, the capstone was one of the first stones sent So they had to go down in the valley and they had to find this capstone and bring it back up and clean it off and put it in place. And it was perfect. That's what Jesus is talking about. He said, you folks have rejected me, the rock, the cornerstone, the capstone, but I'm the rock upon which salvation is found. In fact, in Acts chapter four, when Peter is preaching just about 45 days after this, He's preaching to the Sanhedrin that crucified Jesus. He said, you killed the son of God. God raised him from the dead. And you know what you were doing? You rejected the stone who is Jesus Christ and there's salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. So if you reject God's offer, you will experience God's judgment. You know, I love that great song by Andre Crouch. He left his mighty throne and glory to bring to us redemption story. That's some of the greatest lyrics ever written. He left his mighty throne and glory to bring to us the redemption story. He came to give you a gift. And that gift is eternal life. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. When you receive Jesus Christ, you receive eternal life. Let me remind you that eternal life is not living forever. That's what a lot of people think it is, existing forever. Oh, no. Eternal life is a quality of life that happens when you know Jesus. And some people, I've even read it in obituaries sometimes. So-and-so died and entered eternal life. Nope. When you come to Jesus and you know Jesus, that's when your eternal life begins. John 17:3. Jesus is praying that high priestly prayer the night before the cross, and he prays these words. Father, this is eternal life. Listen carefully. That they may know you, the one true God, K and that they may know the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ, that is eternal life. And if you know the Lord, you have that gift right now of eternal life. But if you don't know the Lord, if you're celebrating Christmas and you really don't know the reason behind it, you do not have eternal life, but he offers it as a gift today. I love the true story I read about a missionary in Africa. She was teaching a school And she was teaching the students there that in America on Christmas, friends give gifts to each other to express love and to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so one of the little boys presented to her a beautiful, intricate, exquisite seashell. And she'd never seen one like it before. She said, where did you find that? And he mentioned a certain bay and that was the only place that that kind of shell was found. And it was 10 miles away. And she said, you mean you, you walked all the way 10 miles to get this shell and you walked 10 miles back to give it to me? And in his broken English, he said, long walk, part of gift. <laughs> long walk, part of gift. Wow, to think that Jesus Christ came from being God, a very God, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father to come down to this garbage dump called planet earth and then to humble himself even more and to die a death of a criminal on a cross long walk part of gift have you accepted his gift if not you can do that right now would you bow your heads with me right now and if you're here in person or you're watching on a screen if you'll pray this prayer sincerely from your heart You can receive the gift of eternal life. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus for me. Thank you that he took my punishment on the cross. Right now, I surrender my life to you, Jesus. Come and take control of my life. I will live for you for the rest of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer and you're at home on screen, make sure you contact us over the website or just call the number that you can find us at. Or if you're in this room and you pray that prayer for the first time as we dismiss in just a moment after we sing a song, head out here to Guest Central. Just tell somebody, I prayed that prayer for the first time. Or maybe you're here and you're not a member of Moberly, but God is leading you here and feeding you here. Be a great day for you to say, hey, I want to talk about membership at Moberly." Or perhaps you have trusted Christ, but you haven't been baptized since you were born again. Uh, Talk to somebody back there about scheduling your Christian baptism. You'll be glad you did.